refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. I'm Serge Antonin. Black and White and Thin Blue Lines is an original podcast co-created by Clark Ollers and me. Welcome to another episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. My name is Clark Eilers. And I'm Serge Antonin. And our podcast today is the life story of a man named Yusuf Salam. Y-U-S-E-F-S-A-L-A-A-M. And the significant part of our story begins on April 19th, 1989. Serge, what happened on that date? Well, on that date... Yusuf Salam, who was 15 years old at the time, lives in Manhattan, New York. A 28-year-old woman is raped in Central Park. And subsequently, a large group of young African-American and Hispanic males are arrested for attacks on that day in Central Park. And a subgroup, which would later become known as the Central Park Five, was charged with the rape of this young woman, and Yusuf Salam was one of the individuals who became part of what's known as the Central Park Five. Now, Serge, a quick pickup on that. On April 19th, I just want to point this out for our listeners. This 28-year-old woman, 28-year-old woman who was raped, she was also so brutally beaten that she suffered brain damage, significant brain damage. Uh, This was a terrible, terrible crime. And the reason the brain damage and so forth becomes important is she had no recollection of the incident. In any event, on April 20th, 1989, Yusuf Salam is alleged to have admitted that although he didn't rape the victim, he did hit her with a pipe at the beginning of the rape by other people. Now, in those days, the New York Police Department engaged in a process where they would frequently interrogate somebody without it being recorded. And then after the person admits to some misconduct, they then bring in a tape or videotape even and record the confession part. The interesting thing about Yusuf's case is that Yusuf was never recorded and Yusuf challenged whether he even said what was alleged and he never signed the statement they alleged that he gave. Right. So my point is, I, uh, although we're telling our listeners mm-hmm. that uh, police say he admitted this, I'm not sure he admitted this. In an unrecorded confession by the NYPD. Now, the next interesting date in this case is May 1st, 1989. And uh, Serge, I, as I recall, you're a big supporter of Donald Trump. In, in what world are you <laughs> referring to me being a – don't say that. Our listeners will be trying to catch me in the street, Clark Alice. <laughs> I understand. Well, on May 1st, 1989 – No, say it was a joke, Clark. You got- <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. On May 1st, 1989, Donald Trump, then a real estate tycoon in New York, bought full-page ads in a New York paper. The cost of the full-page ad in today's dollars is $220,000. And the ad was bring back the death penalty, specifically about the Central Park Five. Uh, Serge, 
Do you have any, you lived right across the river in Jersey at this time. Is that correct? I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. And I remember this incident when it happened and the news coverage. And it was, it was kind of terrifying in two senses. If you were a person who went into New York and you're law abiding, you didn't really see the, the race of it. You just saw it as like the, the fear of it could be you, you know, because they made it seem like they, there were all these marauding teens kind of like in a wolf pack attacking people in Central Park and in the street. But then if you were a young African-American male, you knew that this jogger was white and there was always the cloud over the NYPD and that they beat confessions out of these kids. So it it was crazy. So, you know, as a young African-American male, I was like, man, what's to come? And then you had Donald Trump calling for their heads. It was insane. Serge, I agree that Donald Trump's position was uh, could not be supported. But one of the things which is most shocking about the story of Youssef is this. At the time of Youssef's interrogation, April 20th, 1989, New York law required that children under the age of 16 be accompanied by a parent when they were interrogated by the police. Mm-hmm. Now, when Yusuf was arrested, he lied about his age. He said he was 16. Well, the judge in a pretrial motion said that Yusuf should not benefit from his falsehood. And therefore, the judge admitted his alleged statement to the police and it was upheld on appeal. Now, the reason I, I, I find this logic just bizarre to me, the reason that New York law required that a child under 16 be accompanied by a parent was the idea that a child under the age of 16 was no match for the police Mm -hmm. in an interrogation. And it is beyond dispute that Yusuf was under the age of 16. Well, proof that he was not ready for the New York City police is he lied about his age in a way which hurt his legal position. Yes. Didn't help his legal position. And And in an unrecorded interview in a sense. So who knows what they made him say? Well, so so the point is how a judge reasoned that uh, Yusuf was benefiting from his falsehood. Uh, What do you mean benefiting? Benefiting from suppressing a statement which by law should never have been taken in the first place. And that was an unsigned statement. Correct. So anyway, so as bad as Donald Trump was in his 1989 full-page ad in the New York papers, I still have a special place in my uh, contemptuous, the contemptuous part of my mind and heart for the judge in the case. Oh, I agree. I agree. So now let's get to the trial. Uh, poor, poor Yusuf goes on trial. He's found not guilty of attempted murder, but convicted of um, multiple crimes, uh, robbery, riot, I believe rape or attempted rape and so forth. And he's sentenced to five to 10 years. Now that was the maximum sentence the judge could give a child of the age of 15 at the time of the crime. And uh, at sentencing, Yusuf tells the judge he was innocent and that this legal lynching was a test from God. Well, another thing I think we uh, missed was that one of the detectives lied and told him that his fingerprints were on 
the clothing of the victim. And like you said, with him being no match for the police, adults aren't a match for the police in a seven-hour interrogation. You know what I mean? It's been proven. So I just think that the the greatest injustice to a man, when I say man, man or woman, is to charge them and sentence them for a crime they did not commit. Well, so far in our story, the listener may well believe that Yusef did commit this crime. And, uh, of course, Yusef had due process of law, at least theoretically. Theoretically. And he he was convicted by a jury, and the jury was not um, all white. So it was a mixed-race jury, but uh, found him guilty. He got five to ten years. I will say this. One of the things that's interesting when you study this case is there were some questions surrounding the DNA in the case. Can, can we stop before you go there? The thing that's so scary, you said about the jury being mixed race. But in a case like this, you can't relate to anyone, regardless of what race they are. If, if you hear of some the things they supposedly did to this woman— Race really didn't matter. I don't care if if I were on a jury and the defendant was black and I if you presented me evidence that made me believe that he did this, I couldn't care less what color he was. Well, I I do disagree with you about the I guess your kind of meaning your statement suggests that Race wasn't a huge factor in the case. I actually, no, only in, in terms of the jury. I think it was a huge but, factor in terms of the case, which made them uh, – the, the the kids were robbed of their due process. I believe race was a big factor in that. But if you present evidence that is, we know today, trumped up, and I'm on the jury and I believe the evidence – these guys have to go away. Well, I understand that. I understand that race wouldn't be uh, the deciding factor for you, nor, yeah. nor should it be for anybody. Absolutely. But I, It's I, civic duty at that point. I understand. But yeah. my point is that I think that the idea of a jury of our peers is that, uh, and I do believe this, a jury of African Americans in New York in 1989 and 1990 – I think would be more skeptical of the New York Police Department in general than a jury of Caucasians. You're absolutely right. Well, I that's why that. I think that the fact that it was a mixed race is significant. But uh, no, I'm agreeing with that. Okay. Yeah, I'm agreeing with that. You did all that talking just now to say we agree. Another fact in the jury that I just uh, jury trial that I just want to make a point about is there were questions surrounding the DNA uh, in the case. Specifically, the DNA did not match. Uh, Yusuf, but let's cut ahead to 2001. Uh, Yusuf had served approximately, well, he served approximately seven years in prison. He's out by 2001. Yusuf had gotten his high school diploma and his associate's degree while he was in prison. Then something pretty interesting happens in 2001. What's that, Serge? A man by the name of Mr. Mateus Reyes confesses to the rape of the Central Park jogger, and his DNA is a match. Uh, Not only is it interesting that he confessed, but he also said he acted alone. 
And I will say, in fairness to both sides of this uh, story, the woman's injuries were so substantial that there were experts, forensic experts, who believed that multiple persons had attacked her. But Reyes said, nope, he acted alone. His DNA matched. And uh, in 2002, Yusuf's conviction was vacated. And as typical of the police, police maintain that they got it right. That to this day, <laughs> to, to this, this day. day, the police are maintaining they've got it right. In fact, there was a, a group put together by the New York Police Department under one of the commissioners during this period of time to study this case to see if the police got it right. And they concluded that the police got it right. And that uh, that young, doesn't surprise me. No, I understand. But in 2003, Yusuf and others file $41 million lawsuit against New York. And, of course, the point of a civil suit should be, in part, a search for truth. In other words, now it's time for both sides to put up or shut up. There's full discovery. In other words, everybody can be deposed in a civil case. And uh, the suit goes on for about 11 years. Which is crazy. I think it might be crazy, but there might have been method to the madness of the lawyers representing Yusuf in this case. Why is that, Serge? In 2014, de Blasio gets elected, and the city settled with Yusuf for $7.1 million. And also with the other, uh, all of the plaintiffs settled with the city. Yusuf got his $7.1 million. In 2016, Yusuf became a member, a board member, of the Innocence Project. For our listeners not familiar, although most people in the United States are now familiar, the Innocence Project is a project that relies primarily upon forensic evidence to try to overturn false convictions, bad convictions. And they've been very, very successful around the country. A number of people have come off death row as a result of the Innocence Project and so forth. Yusuf's a board member. So why are we talking about Yusuf? Salam, and why is his life um, important to our podcast, Black and White and Thin Blue Lines, in 2023? Anything going on? Well, he's absolutely turned his life around after getting his high school diploma in prison and an associate's degree. He's now decided to run for New York City Council, and in a landslide, he won the primary. So... He's turned his life completely around. And the thing I find interesting is that he is not angry. I don't know that I would want to be dealing with the system in any regard at this point. Because if you believe, because, you know, there are people who still believe that the police got it right. But if you believe, believe that the police absolutely got it wrong, how could a man who's had so much taken from him, and then the 11 years in a civil suit, want to even be bothered with the system. You would think a guy like this would say, I'm going to take my 7.1 and I'm going to fade off. But he isn't. And it makes you wonder who he really is on the inside. Is this all about helping or is it about continuing his moments of fame? And I, I sincerely hope it's about helping because what happened to him and these other young men were shameful. One of the things I think uh, rings true to me in this case is if you recall our episode on how to pick a police chief, and I said I would want a police chief ideally 
that had been arrested or had a negative contact with the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. because I believe that's very impactful and important to being fair-minded about the criminal justice system. And I've frequently told my friends that if I ever went back to law enforcement, I think I'd be a different type of police officer. You'd be older. Yes, much and <laughs> older, but just uh, 40 years or so older, 50 years older. But the point is, not only would I be a lot older, but I think that I would pay much more attention to trying to get all sides of the story and follow the evidence, more so than even my gut and so forth. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of police officers follow their instincts and I've worked with some police officers who had phenomenal instincts. So I'm not, and I'm not criticizing it. I just mean when I look back, having defended so many people on the other side of the courtroom and really seen some gross injustice and seen innocent people falsely accused of crimes, I'm just far more sensitive to it. And what makes it worse is that some not only follow their instincts, but their biases. No question. So I'm actually very interested in, in tracking Yusuf uh, Salam. Now, I wonder if you're a police officer in New York, whether you think Yusuf Salam would be open to you even being a police officer, even having, or is he a defund the police guy? I don't believe that he is. I think that we've read that he is the opposite of defund the police, which would kind of make sense to me while it may not make sense to the average police defunder, if you want things done right, you have to pay for them, Clark Hollers. You can't take money away from it. You've got to make sure money goes to it, but that money has to be responsibly monitored. And the behavior and conduct of these people who are giving the money has to be responsibly monitored. Well, uh, on June 29th, 2023, which I think was the day after the stunning victory of the D Democratic primary for Yusuf, he was quoted in the New York Post as saying, quote, most people would think I would be pro defund the police in brackets. I don't know exactly <laughs> what word he used. But the truth of the matter is we need the police, end quote. And he emphasized that he wanted, quote, smarter policing instead of, quote, over enforcement. I I, I got to tell you, I'm absolutely stunned that that's his way of looking at it. I mean, here is an, he's an African-American male. He spent, assuming that uh, the New York Supreme Court has got it right now and the uh, civil suit's been resolved correctly and so forth, he's a man who went to prison for seven years as a very young man for a crime he didn't commit in a decision to admit his alleged statements that is, in my judgment, still legally outrageous. I actually still think it's worse than what Donald Trump did. He was subjected to a rich white guy in Manhattan taking full-page ads out saying, bring back the death penalty so that guys like Yusuf could be executed. And here he is, uh, not only being a productive member of a democratic system, in other words, running for office, mm -hmm. fairly putting his name in, but that's no easy task. And I have to imagine that although he might be popular because of his history with some voters, 
There are going to be other voters that are going to be absolutely aghast. But what is the quote that Gandhi said? I, I may be saying be the, be the change you want the world to be. There you go. So, I mean, hopefully that's what he's doing. I think it's wonderful. I agree. But I'm just so actually not only surprised, but I'm just very, very impressed. And I really think this is a one of the reasons we we started this podcast, Black and White and Thin Blue Lines, was to talk about the intersection of race and criminal justice in America. And the Central Park Five was basically the entire issue boiled down to one case. I mean, it had everything. Yes. White victim, black suspects, uh, predominantly white police force at that point, uh, accusations uh, against these young men. There was a word that was used at the time called wilding mm-hmm. to describe what these young men were doing in Central Park. There was a sense of round them up, a rich white guy that's a big-time property developer who later becomes president of the United States, takes a full-page ad out saying these young people, 15-year-old, deserves the death penalty for this crime. Uh, pretty shocking thing to have that man want to participate in our democracy, represent Harlem in the New York City Council, and be a productive member of society. And you, you got to, I would think that now as an, as an older man, as a man, rather than a, a child, which he was, he understands that at the center of it was a horrifying crime that humanity required someone pay for. And because of the country we live in, oftentimes there's a two-tiered justice system, as we often talk about, and the wrong people were punished. But luckily, the wrongs were kind of done right, and the right guy is now where he needs to be. Mr. Salam and his, I'll call them, they're probably friends now, have kind of quote unquote been repaired and they can move on and and attempt to make the world a better place for their children and mine. The 28-year-old victim in this case, uh, we're, I'm not going to, neither Sergio or I are going to say her name and that, her name is very public now, but I just think. It's I none of our believe, business, Clark Ellis. <laughs> do what? I said it's none of our business. <laughs> well, I just think that um, rape victims' names there's nothing wrong with protecting that. Absolutely. Respecting that. And she certainly didn't give me permission to use her name, so I'm not going to use it. But and in I'm any event, she, she is a – she's become a very uh, – she's had a very productive life herself. It's a miracle that she has recovered physically because the – if you – I think one eye socket was fractured in 22 places, for example. I, mean, I didn't even you, know that was possible. I didn't either, and it was just terrible the, the, how badly this woman was physically destroyed. And she's become a motivational speaker. And I would be and am very impressed, just, just like Yusuf has had a metamorphosis from an accused criminal to a and I'm not saying he ever committed the crime, but he's really become a very, very productive member of society, overcoming incredible obstacles, 
seven years of imprisonment and 11 years civil suit. Uh, you know, much of his life has been spent fighting to prove his innocence in this offense. So I'm very impressed with him, but I'm also impressed because I can't imagine at 28 years old, if I had been victimized so brutally as this woman was. Now, I, there may be a blessing in disguise in the sense that she was so brain injured that she has no memory of the incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, her rehabilitation period was about a, a physical rehabilitation period was a year or more. Incredible damage done to this woman. And for her to come back and say, look, life is worth living and to be a motivational speaker, she's a, she's a better person than me. Better person than many of us, I'm sure. So that ends our episode. A tip of the hat to, to two people, to a then 28-year-old woman, 28-year-old woman who was a victim of a horrible crime and has led a very productive life following the assault committed upon her, and to Yusuf Salam, who is showing by his life that we can overcome incredible obstacles Thank you. Thank you. But life is never easy. There's work to be done and obligations to be met, obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. This podcast is the copyrighted property of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines Incorporated, a Maryland corporation. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the written permission of the owner is prohibited. For more information, we invite you to visit the website, blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com. All of the words in the URL address use common spelling and are typed together with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we welcome your remarks through email. The email addresses of the co-creators, Serge Antonin and Clark Ollers, may be found on the website.